What would be your greater nightmare? Our, our passage tonight, if you turn with me to Mark chapter 5, our passage tonight is a frightening scene. As a matter of fact, I would say if I was to pick one of the most frightening scenes in the entire uh, New Testament and Bible, this would be up there high. Right before that would be maybe, I don't know, the passage before it. <laughs> uh, this is a very interesting passage of Scripture. It's got all of these frightening Hollywood-esque elements. For example, you've got people that are in a foreign, unknown territory. And not only are they in a foreign, unknown territory, they are on a foreign, unknown, desolate seashore. And it appears that it's in the middle of the night. Uh, So you're in an unknown place in the middle of the dark. You're next to a herd of pigs, which might not be very scary to you, but hey. If you're in an unknown place on a seashore with a herd of pigs, that could be kind of scary. You're next to a graveyard. How many of you like to walk through graveyards at night? Creepy. Uh, and worst of all, worst of all, a demon-possessed man runs up to you with a terrifying reputation. This is the makings of a Hollywood movie, a Hollywood terrifying movie. Now, as we approach this uh, passage in, in Mark chapter five, I want to um, kind of give you a big picture kind of concept that I want to drill down for you, just kind of kind of showing you where we're at. For, for one, we're, we're in the Gospel of Mark, and as I've told you at the very beginning of this series, Mark is very economical with his language. He doesn't, he doesn't mess around. He takes, he, takes, he takes little time to get to the action, right? Jesus is in the wilderness, well, whereas, well, in Luke, he hasn't even shown up yet. You know, Jesus, Jesus is on a move in Mark. Uh, Mark does not waste language. But this passage here, just, just so you know, uh, Mark takes a long time on this passage, and he also sets it up uh, chronologically. He tells us exactly when this all happens. As you see in Mark 4, verse 35, he says, On that day when evening had come. Usually Mark doesn't spend time telling you about that kind of stuff. But he wants to draw attention to the fact that Jesus has just begun speaking to the crowds in parables. And if you remember why Jesus started speaking to the crowds in parables, it was judgment because the religious leaders said, you are demon-possessed. That's why you can do all of these miracles. So they're saying, we recognize your greatness, your power, your authority, and it's coming from the devil. And so Jesus started speaking miracles, and that same day we see kind of this judgment by geography sort of sense where Jesus leaves the region of Galilee, and goes across the lake to a Gentile region. So there's a, there's a chronological note to be made. And, and also, um, we're not going to cover it tonight. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture, but um, chapter 4, 35 through 41, you kind of see this tale of two fears. So you see the disciples terrified by this storm. And they wake up Jesus and they're like, what in the world is your problem? Don't you care about us? Don't, don't you care that we're about to die? They're terrified for their life. And remember, they're seasoned sailors. So this, is, this tells you about how bad this storm was. And then Jesus gets up, yawns, because he's asleep. He rebukes the wind, rebukes the waves with a word, and it's completely calm, and the waves stop. And then there is this terrifying fear inside the boat. But you notice Jesus rebukes them for one fear, and he he encourages them or accepts or receives the second fear. But most of all, the thing I want you to notice here is at the very end of that passage, um, verse 40 of chapter 4, he said to them, Why are you so afraid? 
have you still no faith? So, so let me just talk to you guys. Sometimes you are afraid because you have no faith. Got that? Got that point? Sometimes you are fe- fearful and you do things based on fear because your faith is small. But then look at verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Sometimes there is a good kind of fear. Sometimes it is right and righteous and holy to be good and scared. Or let me put it this way, sometimes you can't live the way Jesus calls you to live unless there is this fear of God in you. And, and notice this, this question. There's this question that isn't answered. I, I love reading. I love reading stuff like this. This question that isn't answered, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's almost like Mark is, is looking to you and saying, who is it? Who then is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Like our song that we sang tonight, uh, who else commands all the hosts of heaven? Who else could make every king bow down? Who else can whisper and darkness trembles? Only a holy God. That is, that is, that is the answer that you come away with. But Mark da- lets you fill that answer in kind of for yourself. Or, let me put it this way, he lets some very interesting characters answer that question for us. So that's where we are in Mark chapter 5. We're looking for the answer to the question. Who then is this who commands the winds, who commands the waves, who commands the most terrifying things on earth that we can think of? Um, so we're going, to, we're going to ask this of three different characters. If you're taking notes, we're going to have three points, and I guarantee you there will be three points tonight. Three different characters who answer this question. Who then is this? And the obvious application is, oh, who do you guys say Jesus is? That's the driving question Mark is, 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 is going for this entire book. Who do you say that Jesus is? Lena. Who do you say that Jesus is? Taya. Who do you say that Jesus is? Nathan. And so on and so forth. Who do you say that Jesus is? Let's listen to what our characters um, have to do say in answer to this question. First off, the first response we have to this lingering question is from terrified demons. Terrified demons. Let's read uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasians. Now, just a little um, note. Notice he says the country of the Gerasians. He doesn't say they came to the to the city of Gerasian. If you look in your map in the back of your Bible, if you ever do that, you'll notice that the Gerasia is about 30 miles southwest on land. So it would be impossible to get there by boat. So it's the country of that, it's that region. As a matter of fact, there's a very interesting little town that was found right on the uh, east bank of the Sea of Galilee. It has this nice it's, 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 the town is close by, and there's this cliff that goes right down near the waters, and there's these tombs. So people think probably it was somewhere around there because it geographically fits all the details of our story. And notice also, people don't know exactly when they landed on this foreign territory, 
but I'm kind of of the opinion that it was in the middle of the night because it only takes two, three hours to cross this lake and they started at about three and yeah, they had this terrible storm that scared them half to death and they woke up Jesus, but let's calculate two more hours for the storm. It could have still been kind of dark or at least just beginning to be dawn when they're landing on the shore here. And we continue reading in verse two. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. Look at this. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. What a, what a brilliantly terrifying picture. How would you feel about living in the nearby town? All right, all right, Matt, it's time to go to bed. What's that? It's, it's the guy that gets little boys if they go outside. Yeah, it's a very effective parenting tool. Uh, Mother Goose probably grew up here. Um, but notice, notice how immediate the action begins. As soon, look at that, immediately as soon as Jesus got out of the boat, there this man was face to face with him. That, how, how, how high would the hair on your neck uh, stand on end if you suddenly turned around and this guy was looking right at you. Just, just imagine what this guy would have looked like, right? Well, this guy hasn't taken a bath in a couple years, probably, right? Matted hair, looks filthy. He probably has raging bl- uh, bloodshot eyes from never sleeping. I mean, he sleeps in tombs. He eats who knows what. What do you think his breath smelled like, right? He probably had cuts all over his body because he is constantly trying to hurt himself. He is just a terrifying picture. And we see here in our passage that he was very strong, immensely strong, unhumanly strong, right? He could tear chains apart. Notice also he could crush the chains. He smashed chains. It wasn't just that he was tearing the chains apart, but he was smashing them. And he was continually haunting others and hurting himself, crying, cutting. Those are present tense verbs in the original. This was constantly going on. He is constantly um, wielding dominion over the local region, the whole, uh, the whole country of this area, by his terror, by his screams, by his strength. Luke actually adds that no one could go through here. We, we would like to bury great-grandma Rogers in that grave, but we can't because there's that man that's there. No one could go around here because he was there. As a matter of fact, did you notice it? Mark makes a point. He makes an emphasis. No one could bind him. Verse 3, verse 4, no one could bind him. Remember that. That's important for later. Now, this man is a picture, is a picture of Satan's power and dominion, right? And, and we know from elsewhere in our Bible that Satan has power and dominion, not just this is not just some mystical, made-up thing. This is true. This is an ever-present reality for us as long as the Lord Jesus Christ tarries and doesn't come back to receive us. We live in a world that lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John 5, 
19, if you don't believe me. Uh, John 12, 31. John 14, 30. John 16, 11. It calls him the ruler of this world. So really quick, if you're taking notes, just write kind of like a, a parenthesis. Let's quickly just understand how is Satan's power seen today. So I don't want you guys to just see this passage as, oh, that's made-up stuff, that stuff that doesn't apply to me. How is Satan's power seen today? Satan's power was clearly at work in this individual, but how is it at work today? Well, the first thing you'll notice, um, by the way, if you're taking notes, just like I'm going to tell you the reference, jot down the reference, and if you want to scribble something after that. But first off, just a general point to be made, Satan wields the greatest power of all created beings. Satan could be the strongest thing um, God has ever created. He's always fighting against the other strongest thing that God has created, Michael. Um, Satan prowls the earth. It says in Job 1, 8, or John 10, 10, or we see it specifically in 1 Peter 5, 8. Satan is prowling the earth, or as Job would say it, going to and fro, walking up and down, looking for people to dominate, looking for people to devour, looking for people to destroy. Satan is an ever-present adversary. Now notice, going to and fro, walking up and down, he is spatially uh, limited. He he can only be in one spot at one time, but he moves pretty fast. Satan's power is highly organized and distributed. So Satan is organized. He, he is smart. He distributes his power among his, his devils, his demons. We see talk of many devils and demons. Um, not, sorry, not devils, but many demons. Um, Satan's power is sometimes overt and it's sometimes covert. So sometimes it's overt like we see uh, with this man here where he is demon-possessed. And, and running around the countryside like a lunatic and a madman, but not always, um, or sometimes we see this in the occult, but sometimes, and I think more often today, we see uh, Satan's power more in covert ways. You know, suits and ties that knock on your front door, say we've got great news for you, or worldly wisdom, or sinful philosophies, uh, just, just for an example, write down Revelation 13.3 or 13.4-5 or 13.7 and you see Satan here giving authority to the beast. And, and you see this also in Matthew 4.8 where Satan claims to be able to give Jesus the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Jesus doesn't refute this fact. Satan has some sort of power and control over the world. But once again, like I said, it's, it's a very covert power. You go into maybe, maybe another part of the world and you might see more overt um, tactics. And even some places here, as we become more pagan in our society, you see overt tactics. But, uh, but mainly what we see is covert through worldly wisdom, through worldly philosophies. For example, James 3.15 says, uh, This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, un." spiritual and third word demonic for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist there will be disorder in every vile practice there's a there's a demonic element to pride to arrogance to worldly wisdom to philosophies of man matter of fact you see this in ephesians 2 verse 1 it says we you were dead in transgression uh trans 
trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There is a demonic element, inspiration behind even disobedience. And, and, and j- just so you know, covert, I'm talking about like Disney wisdom. I'm talking about Twitter uh, ideas, right? Worldly wisdom. I think this is true. Or if you watch a Disney movie, little simple messages about how your parents are idiots or how the old things are stupid. What's true is what's true in your heart. Just be true to yourself. That's a worldly philosophy from the pit of hell. But, but look, and just to, just to make this point, when the Bible talks about spiritual warfare, it talks about understanding. It talks about your mind. It talks, it, talks, it talks like this in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments, look at that, arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. How do you fight spiritual warfare? It is by thinking God's thoughts after him. It's about thinking right about dating, about clothing, about entertainment, music, all of those things. It's about thinking right about how you live your life. What are you going to do with your life? What is retirement? What does that look like? That, that is how you do spiritual warfare, by thinking God's thoughts after him, by demolishing um, arrogant opinions, lofty opinions. That, that is Satan's power. It's sometimes overt, yes, but often it is covert. And I guarantee you, you guys struggle against the influences of the world and of Satan in your life as well. So there it is. Satan's power is sometimes overt, sometimes covert. Satan's power is through death. Hebrews 2.14 says this. He, he he controls, he dominates through the power of death. Now, it's important that you notice that Jesus didn't come to the world to kind of ransom us from Satan because we're in his dominion. Jesus came to the world to ransom us from the power of death and therefore the power of Satan. Satan's hold on us is also over our sinful nature. It says that in John 8.44, Ephesians 2.2. 2. Um, here's, here's a nice little way to think about yourself if you're not in Christ. John 8.44, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's Desire. Satan's hold and power is because of something natural in us, because, because of who we are sinfully. Satan power, Satan's power is also, though, we should note, notice this, Satan's power is also under God's sovereign control and governance. You see that in Job 1, 6, 6 through 12. So here, just, just a few thoughts about Satan's power in our world today. You, you might not be possessed like this man is, and by the way, the Bible makes it very clear that, that having mental problems is not the same as um, possession, demon possession. You might not be possessed like this man in our story is, but you are just as much under the dominion of the ruler of this world as he is because of who you are by nature, because of who, the, the world that you live in and the influences that you seek, and that's why you need the Word of God. And, and the, other thing, the other thing to notice also is the only... The only true safety that you can find in this world from the ruler of this world is in 
Christ. That's the only safety that Scripture provides you. Yes, maybe you may not be experiencing um, overt or covert attacks by the devil, but that's only because God is gracing you with another day to hear the gospel and to to receive Christ. Jot down Romans 8, 38 through 39. It says, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not anything, not height, not depth, not any evil creation in all, all the world. The only safety is by putting on, as Ephesians 6.10 says, the armor of God. So there we are, a nice little caveat about Satan's power. Let's return to our story. Um, it's interesting, as we get back to this demoniac here, it's interesting that in verse 6, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Now, of all the things I would expect this demoniac to do, it would be to run where? Where, Hudson? Where, Hudson? So here's two. Here's two, Jesus. Where, where would you expect the demoniac to go? Away from Jesus. But he goes to Jesus. Very curious. Why does this happen? Or why do you guys think the demoniac runs right to Jesus? This is the part where you open your mouth and speak to me. Yes. So why would he run to Jesus? They can't hide from him. So he's just gonna, they're just going to deal with this right now. Yes. So he made him come. Okay, very interesting option. I kind of, I kind of think that we see this happening all the time with demons. They keep coming to Jesus and crying out. If you don't believe me, uh, look in your Bible later to Mark chapter 1, 23 through 24. Jesus seems to, yeah, maybe, maybe the, the devil, it could, be, it could be two things. The demon could be trying to, trying to confront Jesus because he's stepping on his turf kind of thing, but it also could be that the same, the same voice that calms the sea and the storm also can command a demon to come and he comes or to go and he goes because Jesus has authority. Well, this an- this demon answers our lingering question. You remember what the lingering question is, right? Who then is this? Look at that in verse 6. Uh, sorry, not 6 anymore. I already read that. Uh, verse 7, he cries out with a loud voice and said, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Remember the lingering question. This is the only character in the entire story who answers the question. Here it is. This is Mark's style. He wants to put the truth that you need to know about Jesus in the mouths of the most unexpected people who will tell you that. Now, now, interesting question. I got lots of questions about this passage. How does the demon know Jesus' name? And how does he see him from such a great distance? Because that's what our passage says. He saw Jesus, and he comes down, and he confronts Jesus. And notice, it's not just Jesus, his human name, and it's not just Son of God. It's Son of the Most High God. Of all the gods in the world, you are the Most High God. You are my boss. You are my ultimate authority, Son of the Most High God. And notice, why is he so scared? He's saying, have you come to torment me? That's kind of a little hypocritical, don't you think? This guy has been tormenting this man for years. And 
And like the big bully he is, Jesus shows up. He's like, why, are you, why have you come here to torment me? As a matter of fact, we see in Matthew eight twenty nine, the demon adds this, before the time. Judgment, judgment is known to demons. They know a judgment is coming. Luke eight thirty one says, have you come to throw me into the abyss? Which is referring to this judgment holding cell that Satan and all of his angels will be put in during the millennial kingdom according to Revelation 20, 1 through 3. There you go. Um, so this, this, this demon has terrifying fear of Jesus. And then we see in verse 9, Jesus asks him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, just for those of you that maybe don't play um, Age of Empires or anything like that and don't know what a legion is, a legion is a certain amount of troops, about 3,000 to 6,000 troops. And this is kind of a, a, a picture of order, of you kind of like many men um, moving as one man, kind of authority and organization. That's what you think of when you think of a legion. You think of a military unit, unit that has great control and discipline. And this demon claims that his name is Legion. Don't know why he claims that name, whether he's trying to intimidate Jesus or intimidate his disciples, or if it's truly his name. Hey, we're, there's a lot of us, so we just decided, we just got together and said, what should we call ourselves? Legion. We, we don't know why he said this. It seems to me, though, that it just is referring to the fact that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of demons in this man. And then notice verse 10, he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And all the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, by the way, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned. Now, there's, there's obviously some indications there. There were at least probably about 2,000 demons, but you know that they can fit in small spaces, so they could have spread out. But at least 2,000 demons, because that's how many herd of pig there were. And by the way, I looked it up, and 2,000 pigs... That's a ridiculous number of pigs to have. That is a huge herd of pigs. Even in like modern, modern numbers, if I was reading them right, that is a lot of pigs. And that is, that is a huge amount of animals. That is, a, that is a vast fortune of property to have just hanging out on this hill. And that entire fortune, that, that entire income of some poor unfortunate soul, some farmer, runs as one pig down the hill over the edge and does little pig dives into the water and they drowned. Now why 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 would now my question is why would they want to go into the pigs? Anybody have any idea why the demons would want to go into the pigs? Yes. To kill themselves and then deliver in front of Sure, that could be. They just wanted to kill themselves, but they seem to not want to leave. Yes, what do you think? They just wanted to get away. Interesting. Yes, what do you think? Uh, I just remember this, this passage in my head. It, it might be a callback to where uh, Jesus taught, don't throw crows before pigs lest they trample on you. So they, they're yeah. going into something considered unholy. Sure. Okay, yeah, so just Jesus is sending just to, to reiterate that they're unholy. That's what you're saying? Okay, yeah, maybe. Maybe that, that passage is found in Matthew chapter 7. So maybe Mark is making a tie there. I, I think... I think what was going on in the demon's head is they thought, hey, we, 
we, yeah, we, maybe there's an unclean element, but hey, we're, we're going to try to trick Jesus and get away. But notice this, the, the demons in their rage and in their natural desire to destroy things, notice the man was cutting himself all the time, they just are so consumed with this desire to destroy that they run the herd right down. And the reason why the demons wanted to be in the pigs is they wanted to stay in the country, but in their rage, they kill off the pigs. This is what we see devils and demons doing all the time, if not by the grace of God. And then we see Jesus lets them go to the pigs, which causes an ethical problem uh, for everybody that comments on these passages. How could Jesus do that? He just destroyed some poor man's income. Why did Jesus allow this to happen, allow these pigs to be destroyed? I'll tell you, I'll tell you. I think Jesus wanted people to see his power. And I think he particularly wanted this man to see his power, who he's about to throw all of these demons out of. I want you to see that every single demon is gone and that I have the power to cast them out and I have the power to cast them into the ocean, the sea. I have the authority. They are gone based on my authority. And, and so, th this is the demon's answer, right? You are the Son of God, and Jesus has absolute authority over them. And this is a lesson to us. This is a lesson to us about how we respond to that question. How do you respond to that question? How do you respond to that question? Remember, you can have right knowledge about who Jesus is and still not be one of Jesus' people. The demons believe and tremble, but the demons still have to obey. So that is the first response to the lingering question. The second response to this lingering question, who is this man who wields such power, is from fearful witnesses. Verse 14, fearful witnesses. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man and the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they rejoiced, they received Jesus into their heart, and they all went home. No. What did they do? They were afraid. So, in my Bible, I draw a huge line between chapter 4, verse 41, and this passage. There is a parallel there. We have two responses to Jesus. Awesome authority and power with great fear. And remember I said there's a good kind of fear, but there's also a bad kind of fear. I think we have here a bad kind of fear. A fear that leads to nothing, as we will see. Uh, by the way, the, the verb there, they saw, the Greek, that is the Greek word for gawk. No, I just made that up. They were just continually looking, continually staring. And notice they see this man, he is, Mark makes a point of it, he's sitting, he is clothed, and he is in his right mind. This man, all of these things are notab notable because this man has never, ever done these things before. Just like a two-year-old child. You never see them sitting or clothed or in their right mind. They're never doing it. This is remarkable. This is remarkable. So why were these people so afraid? Well, we see in verse 16, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And, notice, to the pigs. Well, the herdsmen were there and said, this is what happened. So that guy shows up. 
He says something to that guy. That guy says something to that guy. Next thing I know, these pigs are screaming and hollering, running down the hill and going off this cliff. They told everything, including, as Mark adds, what happened to the pigs. Why were these people so afraid? Well, well, he just had cleared out the greatest uh, economy that their country had. He had just destroyed them. It's like, it's like if all the oil wells dry up in Bakersfield, people are going to lose jobs over this. This man has the power to wipe out our entire economy. That is a fearful individual. And, and notice also, this man has power to bind and to subdue a man that we cannot bind or subdue. This man has more authority, more power than anyone we've ever heard of in our life. That causes us to be terrified. We cannot control him. We cannot understand him. We do not know how to offer sacrifices to him or to appease him. This man causes us to fear. And notice, they begin to beg Jesus to leave. Verse 17, they began to beg. I almost, I almost titled this entire sermon, The Tale of the Three Beggars, because we've got the demons begging, we've got the people begging, and in a couple minutes we're going to have somebody else begging. Everybody's begging Jesus to do stuff, and Jesus obeys the demons and he also, as we will see, obeys the people. They begged Jesus to depart from their region. Why did they beg him? We do not know you. We do not understand you. We cannot control you. You just wiped out our economy. All of our, all of our incomes are in the mud. We want you to leave. We want you to leave right now. Sometimes, sometimes, did you know this? Sometimes there is a, a bad kind of fear that keeps you from Jesus. Did you know that? There is a fear that keeps you from Jesus. If I follow Jesus, I won't fit in. If I follow Jesus, I'll lose control. If I follow Jesus, I might not understand him completely. How can I follow a God I do not completely have all of the answers for? Sometimes fear keeps you from Jesus, and it is a wrong kind of fear. Then sometimes we see also Satan's power and dominion is seen in more subtle ways. It's not, it's not overt. It's more covert. It is through greed. It is through pride that keeps these people from Jesus. And this also tells you something very important about like, you know, evidence seekers, people that say, I want Jesus to perform a miracle for me right now and then I'll believe. Y you can have a demon-possessed man who is terrorizing your whole community, and everybody knows he's a demon-possessed man, you can have Jesus come in the flesh, cast those demons out of that man, put them into a herd of pigs, cause all those pigs to run down the hill as proof that the demons are gone from the man and now destroyed, and you still will not believe in who this man, Jesus, is. As Ephesians 2 talks about, and in Ephesians 4 talks about, atheism... Not believing in God is not usually an intellectual issue, not an issue where you need evidence. It's an issue of your heart. It is a heart condition. 
So, so who then is this? What is their response? Well, they give us, they don't give us a clear answer, but we see that from these fearful witnesses, uh, Jesus is someone who I need to get away from as fast as possible. Jesus is dangerous to me in my life, in my world. Uh, Jesus is not as important to me as other concerns. Jesus is someone that I, if I can dismiss, if I can move away from right now, I will because I want something else right now more than I want Jesus's power and authority to free me from the dominion of demons and Satan. That's who Jesus is to fearful witnesses. This leads us to our our third and final response to the lingering question, who then is this? We have the terrified demons, we have the fearful witnesses, and now we have a sweet little story of a delivered individual. Verse 18 says, And he was getting into the boat, that is Jesus, and the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and, and how he has had mercy on you. And, and he went away, it says in verse 20. And began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Notice once again, this man always confronts Jesus just as Jesus is getting into the boat. And he, and he begs Jesus, I, I want to go with you. And once again, like I alluded to before, this is the only time someone or something is begging Jesus in this entire narrative. And Jesus says no. And it's to his person, the person that he delivered. Jesus says no. Sometimes Jesus is hard to follow. Sometimes discipleship requires obedience, requires following Jesus. Sometimes it it requires you going to somewhere he calls you to go and saying something he calls you to say. But I I love this. I I love just the picture of salvation that you can see here in this uh, former demon-possessed man. Notice, before Jesus came into his life, what was he saying? Don't make me leave. Go away from me. And when Jesus comes into his life, he says, I just want to go with you. I just want to be with you. I want to follow you. I don't ever want to leave your presence again. That, that is the change that Jesus makes in the life of an individual. As simple as that. You go from not wanting to be with Christ to wanting to be with Christ. Just like that. And, but why did Jesus send him home? Was this mean? No, Jesus had a mission for him. A mission of grace. A mission to spread the news about Jesus. And also, he had just demonstrated to this demon-possessed man that, hey, nothing not in heaven or in earth or under the earth, can separate you from my power, from my authority, from my love. So you can go out in boldness. And so that is what he did. So who then is this according to the delivered man? Uh, Someone who I delight in, someone who I want to obey, someone that I want to be with, and someone that I'm hoping will will I will be with someday in the future. So some quick little takeaways, then you can head off to small groups. Uh, a one little takeaway, I would say, it's kind of a side application, but it's important nonetheless. Yes, there are overt and there are covert ways that the devil tries to wield his power, but you shouldn't mess with those ways. You shouldn't mess with the occult. You shouldn't go out looking for demon possession. You shouldn't seek something like that as if it's a good thing once again satan is strong and powerful and not to be messed with but also there's another quick little takeaway here Uh, don't mess with jesus 
And, and when I say don't mess with Jesus, I'm saying, hey, you hear the message about Jesus week in, week out. Don't mess with Jesus. This man has authority, power. He is, he is frightening and scary to those that, that don't want to be around him. And he is in a very real, very healthy sense, frightening and scary to those people that are his best friends. Why? Because he's, he's on your side. Um, sometimes also, I, I think it's a good little takeaway. Don't forget the simplicity of your message. Just, just a little tiny application. Notice the demon-possessed man. What, what is his mission? What is he supposed to do? He's supposed to simply go home. I can do that. Go to my friends. I can do that. And I can say, hey, look at me. This is how I used to be, and this is how I am now. Guess who did it? God, the Lord. The Lord did this to me. He transformed me. Why? I used to be in the domain of darkness. I used to be under the bondage of sin and in the power of the devil. But the Lord has saved me, has delivered me. As it says in Colossians 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transformed us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins your message is actually very simple it's very simple let's pray our father in heaven we are thankful for this evening we are thankful for the delight of your word how it instructs us how it how it causes us to fear in good ways and it causes us to not fear in bad ways i pray for these students that they would grow and learn from your word this night i pray this in your name amen